Hello and welcome to the Old Time Radio Forever broadcast. I'm your host, Matt Perry. Join us weekly as we explore the golden era of American radio through the dramas, westerns, mysteries, and comedies that shaped the golden age. Be sure to give us a thumbs up or a five-star review on all of the podcast directories that you may use. As a history teacher, there is no better way to teach the past than with media, whether it be audio, video, the written word. When I do my World War II unit, I pretty much teach it the exact way that tonight's episode is going to be delivered. I let my students listen to history unfold. Pretend that you were sitting in your living room next to your cathedral radio on a lazy, cold December afternoon in the eastern part of the United States. It's about noon. Church is ending. If you're a churchgoer, you're relaxing, getting ready for the next work week. Listening to a football game, the Giants and the Dodgers are playing in New York City and Mutual and CBS are broadcasting the game. As you're sitting there, listening about an eventual field goal drive, you hear your first interruption. The world, as Americans know it, have just been turned upside down. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. You might not be able to find Pearl Harbor on a map, but you do know that the war that has been looming like a Damocles over top of the United States has now come. You are going to listen to a collection of audio broadcasts from December the 7th, 1941. The last audio file that you're going to listen to is the Jack Benny program. Jack Benny and many other radio actors over the multiple networks had to go on the air the old showbiz saying, the show must go on. And they had to try and entertain a shocked nation. So I give to you history as it occurred, nearing the anniversary of the attack. December the 7th, 1941, on Old Time Radio Forever. The world today. The Columbia Broadcasting System now presents a summary of all the important news in the world today. Reports from CBS correspondents by Transatlantic and Transpacific Shortwave Radio. And the latest developments as received by Columbia's newsroom here in New York. Tonight, John Daly will call in Bob Trout from London, Ford Wilkins from Manila, and Albert Warner from our own national capital, Washington. And now first, John Daly. The Far East situation and the war in Russia and Libya topped the news tonight. And first, the story of the fighting in Europe and Africa before going to the Philippines and our own capital for reports on the crisis in Japanese-American relations. The Soviet version of the Russian war reports that along the Sea of Azov in the far south, the Red Army has driven the retreating Germans across the Mias River and established bridgeheads on the West Bank, thereby cutting off the enemy on the Taganrog Peninsula. And on the Moscow front, where the fighting is going on in weather from 10 to 15 degrees below zero, it's asserted the Nazis have been hurled back along the Mozhaisk Highway. The invaders are now more the victims of cold than of bullets, according to the Russians, 
who refer to the weather as our December frost. But in the Tula sector, south of the capital, the Russians admit a new German breakthrough, creating a critical situation in that zone. The latest Soviet official communique is vague, however, but Axis reports assert that a million and a half men are now driving on the capital, and there's some evidence that Moscow is being attacked from the air as well. At Berlin, it's declared the great Russian drive in the south has been stopped, and it's asserted, contrary to the Soviet version, that the Germans are making progress in the Mozhysk sector of the Moscow front. New severe fighting in Libya was reported by the German high command today, and a Rome communique describes heavy fighting in the desert around Bear El Gobi. Details, however, are scant. That's the Libyan story as reported by the Axis. We turn now to the British capital for the report of Bob Trout. Go ahead, London. London got today's communique from Libya, which told of British pressure on the enemy throughout the area of operations. There are no reports here indicating the start of any more major tank battles in Libya. But late tonight, London heard that two American-built Tomahawk planes have shot down 20 German Junkers dive bombers in Libya. In less than 15 minutes, Great Britain will officially be at war with Romania, Hungary, and Finland. These three countries are regarded here as German puppets. And tonight, the British radio reminded its home listeners that this is not the first time that German troops have established themselves in Finland. 24 years ago, in the spring of 1918, German troops landed in Finland to take part in a war against Russia. It was over a month later, and then the Finns realized that the Germans had no intention of leaving. The Kaiser's brother-in-law became the king of Finland. And then the Allies defeated Germany, and Finland found herself free. The British home radio ended this talk by quoting the words of the British Foreign Secretary spoken in Parliament in August 1918. Said Mr. Balfour, next to being enslaved by Germany, there is no worse fate than being liberated by Germany. Finland is now being told that she owes her freedom to Germany, but Germany is plundering her, garrisoning her, choosing her form of government, and endeavoring to force her into the Great War. That was the British view in 1918, and that is the British view today. London heard the German radio say that Belgian King Leopold last September married Mary Lilia Bale, daughter of the former Belgian Minister of Agriculture and a schoolgirl in England during the First World War. The Belgian government in London has no word of this reported marriage of the king. The Chinese ambassador, Dr. Wellington Koo, today said in London that if Japan decides to pounce on another victim, it would be as well that the democracies should avail themselves of the opportunity to remove, once and for all, this menace. Most of the time, the customary angry tone of Japanese newspapers causes no surprise here. But today, reports from Tokyo tell us that the Japanese papers are angry because Japan's reply to the United States was published in America. And this did surprise the British. It is the strangest reason for getting angry that London has heard in a long time. You have heard before that the position of the British government is that the Japanese talks are America's business and Great Britain is not intruding. But the British people believe that the Orient is just another sector on the worldwide front in this war, and of course, they are interested in it. A weekly review, The New Statesman and Nation, Today lists a few of the possibilities and wonders what the United States will do if Japan tries to attack Thailand, 
tries to attack British territory, or the Dutch East Indies, or Russia. The new statesman points out that Russia is excluded from the ABCD group, and then says, Secretary of State Cordell Hull will never compromise over the basic principles of international morals, which he reaffirmed in his last dispatch to Tokyo. How much he will do to enforce them is another matter. And now we continue the Far East story with a report direct from an American vantage point. Ford Wilkins is standing by in the Philippine capital. We take you now across the Atlantic and America and the Pacific. Go ahead, Manila. This is Manila. I am reporting to you this morning from the center of a circle of tension extending roughly 1,500 to 2,000 miles in every direction. Preparations for war in this area have reached a new high level. In Singapore, where the British Eastern Fleet is based, we hear that all naval personnel has been recalled to ships. Royal Air Force pilots and men have been ordered to barracks and hangars. Army forces are under similar orders. Singapore has been on emergency status by order of the governor for several days. Mobilization of volunteers has just been completed. An urgent government decree prohibits non-Britishers from leaving the country without special permission. This resulted in stopping a Thai ship about to sail for Bangkok with 20 Japanese aboard. Four Japanese newspapermen were ordered ashore. The reason for this move has not officially been made clear. At Bangkok, plans for removal of the capital of Thailand to an unspecified location in event of war were announced by the Ministry of the Interior. Simultaneously, the Premier took occasion to announce Thai had concluded no secret pact with any foreign power. At Batavia, capital of Java and government center for the Dutch East Indies, official last-minute preparations for war have been made. Police reserves have been mustered into service. The fleet is at full wartime strength. Australia is in a state of excitement. At Melbourne, one correspondent cabled the country was on the brink of war with Japan. The Australian War Cabinet adjourned and was suddenly recalled on information indicating further deterioration of the Far East political picture. All military leaves have been canceled. Here in the Philippines, the Commonwealth government is rushing plans to cope with an emergency. After a meeting of government heads with President Quezon and Baguio, residents of Manila who have homes or relatives in the provinces were urged to leave the city as a prelude to compulsory evacuation of women, children, and men whose services are not urgently required. There is a suggestion of closing the schools. United States military and naval forces have issued no emergency orders, but they are in a state of constant preparation. In Shanghai, key active officials are reported to be conferring with Captain Fritz Wiedemann, German Consul General from Tintin, lately of San Francisco. Britishers and Americans there and in Hong Kong have been advised to leave. This is Ford Wilkins in Manila, returning you now to CBS in New York. That was Ford Wilkins in Manila. Now Albert Warner is ready to report the Far East story from our own capital. We take you now to Washington. 
Against the dark counter moves of military preparation in the Far East, Washington maintained a grim silence today. White House and State Department waited for the reply which Japan is yet to make to Mr. Hull's note setting forth basic principles for a Far Eastern settlement. They clung to silence on the Japanese note of yesterday, which sought to explain Japanese troop movements into French Indochina. But Tokyo's soft answer had not turned away American suspicion. Washington is not convinced that the troop movements were exaggerated or that they were not bent on new aggression. But several senators read into the Japanese delay a hopeful sign. I have had the view all along, said Senator George, that the Japanese do not want to force the issue. Maxim Litvinov, the new Russian ambassador, arrives here by plane tomorrow. He landed in San Francisco today, voicing thanks for American aid in the Russian fight against Hitler. Russia has not been represented in these Far Eastern discussions. To be sure, they have been centered upon South Asia, and perhaps also Russia would prefer not to do anything which might promote its bickering with Japan. But the Soviet has a vital interest at stake. There is no outburst of statements here on the British declaration of war on Finland. It was expected. The secretaries of state and war have several times vainly urged Finland to rest upon the recovery of its lost territory. There is a report that the United States will take over Finnish ships in American waters. Finnish Minister Prokope tells us he has not been so notified yet. In his annual report, Secretary of the Navy Knox declares tonight that the United States has become the greatest naval power in the world. But he said, we must arm against any possible combination of powers against us. The Secretary reports 325 new ships commissioned, 2,059 new airplanes acquired, about 700 vessels under construction, a chain of new ocean bases developed, and personnel increased by 115,000 officers and men. Air bases in the Alaska and Aleutian Islands and elsewhere in the Pacific have a strategic importance which is obvious, Secretary Knox declared, perhaps with an eye on Japan. But Knox is a man who believes in keeping military secrets. Thus, though he discloses that the entire stock of fuel oil in Hawaii will be eventually stored underground, the four pages of his report, which deal with the American islands of Samoa and Guam in the far Pacific, read like a sociological survey. You learn about hurricanes, education, and banana production. And near the end, you will see a sentence. It says that economic conditions on the islands have improved due to money being spent on federal projects. That is the one small hint of new American striking power at one point only 1,500 miles from Japan. More labor trouble crops up. The Independent Welders Union says 75,000 men who hold key jobs in the defense program will strike in shipyards next Tuesday. Unless the AFL stops interfering with this union. For other news on the labor situation, I return you now to New York. Here in New York today, it was indicated that the captive coal mine dispute, which recently created the gravest threat to production since the defense program began, may be settled within the next 48 hours. Dr. John R. Steelman, who's chairman of the arbitration board in the union shop controversy, said that he hopes the board will be able to complete its task within that time. The board, consisting of John L. Lewis for the CIO and Benjamin Fairless for the captive mine owners, with Steelman as chairman, 
as recessed until noon tomorrow. And that's the story of labor. There is news from Latin America. President Batista of Cuba a few hours ago asked Cuba's Congress to declare a state of emergency and grant the cabinet extraordinary powers to rule by decree for 45 days. Batista declared Cuba's national defense effort required emergency action. In Mexico City, Vice Admiral Otado de Mendoza has disclosed a Nazi plot to destroy the port of Tampico. He declared the captains and crews of 10 Axis ships seized by the Mexican government at Tampico last April had loaded their vessels with combustibles with the aim of exploding their ships and the whole port as well. In Honduras today, President Carrillas Andino told Parliament that he has documentary proof that Axis agents had attempted to set up puppet governments in Latin America which would fight against the United States. And describing President Roosevelt as the defender of weak nations, Andino declared that Honduras would do everything possible in support of democracy and its defense. In Argentina, police are taking special precautions tonight against possible disorders in tomorrow's election in the province of Buenos Aires, the most populous in the country, although it does not include the city of Buenos Aires. The race is between the conservative party of acting President Ramon S. Castillo and the radical party of the opposition, which is anti-Nazi and pro-democratic. The ministers of war and navy ordered all troops confined to barracks tomorrow, and all civilian planes will be grounded. And that's the world today. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. It's a long one down to around the three-yard line. Ward Cup takes it, coming up to his left to go to the 10. Nice block there by Lehman. Cup still going. He's up to the 25. And now he's hit and hit hard about the 27-yard line. Bruiser Kennard made the tackle. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. We will hope later to be able to bring you direct reports from both Honolulu and Manila. To recapitulate, the White House reported today Japanese air attacks on the Hawaiian Islands and Manila in the Philippines. Here in the studio with me is Major George Fielding Elliott, Colombia's military expert who will analyze now these latest developments in the Far East. Major Elliott. The Japanese appear to be taking the offensive in an effort to delay and impede American operations in the Far East. Apparently confronted with a situation in which there was no escape except war, the Japanese have attacked the main American naval base in the Pacific at Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands. This attack is by air and can only come from aircraft carriers since the Japanese do not have any bases close enough to the Hawaiian Islands from which to launch land-based aircraft. This is a very great risk for the Japanese to place aircraft carriers within reach of the very powerful naval patrol bombers and the long-range army bombers on the island of Oahu. It is a risk which would only be assumed as a very desperate measure, one which may well result in the loss of the carriers that are making the attack, but may also gain for the Japanese important time to carry out operations in the Far East because of the damage that they may inflict on the naval base and shipping in Oahu, and thus delay the proceeding of the United States Pacific Fleet to the Western Pacific. That is probably the Japanese object, and uh, we don't know yet what success they've had in carrying it out. They're expecting to take heavy losses, and these losses may be expected. The question is how much delay they have purchased for the carriers that they have risked. We have been on the telephone with our station in uh, 
KGMB, which is in Honolulu, and they report to us that the attacking planes number between 50 and 100, that the air raid is still on, and that the anti-aircraft fire can be heard in a steady drone as the attacking planes come in. We received a bulletin just a little while ago which reported that there have been some of these, what Manila Corps, rather Honolulu, calls unidentified planes shot down. And this latest report now from KGMB is all that we have to the moment. We will continue to receive reports from there, also from Washington, on the developments in our relations with Japan, the relations which will tell very shortly the story of what is to happen in the months that are to come. And Columbia will bring you important news bulletins during the broadcast of the New York Philharmonic Society, which follows this program, and will also bring you a summary of all developments at the intermission time. From Washington, the recruiting office of the United States Navy announces that all recruiting centers will be open at 8 a.m. tomorrow. You've been listening to Elmer Davis, Albert Warner, Bob Trout from London, and Major George Fielding Elliott with a review and analysis of the Far Eastern situation. The Wrigley Company has told us that we may interrupt their program at any time to bring you the latest bulletins. But now, we return you to our regularly scheduled program. We will interrupt all programs to give you latest news bulletins. Stay tuned to this station. J-L-L-O! The Jell-O program brought to you by Jell-O and Jell-O Puddings, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens the program with the Gay Ranchero. Jell-O, ladies and gentlemen, is to get several packages at a time and use them as you want them. And with the new Jell-O, you can do this without any fear that your supply of Jell-O will lose flavor and freshness as it stands on the pantry shelf. You can now buy a dozen packages of Jell-O at one time and know that they will all stay at the peak of their goodness until you want them. Because today, Jell-O's flavor is locked in. Locked into the Jell-O particles by an exclusive Jell-O process. The tiny Jell-O particles deliver their full-strength flavor to you intact. Now prove it for yourself. Open a package of Jell-O. Notice that there's no telltale aroma, no sign of escaping fragrance and flavor. But the instant you dissolve the Jell-O, you unlock its captive flavor, and out it pours in all its original richness. Tomorrow, when you order Jell-O, order several packages. Get all of Jell-O's six delicious flavors, and always have a full assortment on hand from which to choose. You can keep Jell-O as long as you please. The flavor doesn't go away. We put it in, and it's there to stay. played by the orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is my very great honor to bring you a man who last Sunday on this program gave you what was undoubtedly the finest performance of his acting career. That's right, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So without further ado, I give you the only actor in America who can make Jekyll and Hyde sound like Brenda and Cobina, Jack Benny. <laughs>
again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, that may be your idea of a funny introduction. But to ridicule my performance of last Sunday, which everyone hailed as a dramatic nugget, that really burns me up. Now, take it easy, Jack. I thought you played the part well enough. But I happened to see the picture, and I didn't think you were as good as Spencer Tracy. Oh, you didn't? No. Well, Don, let me ask you something. Uh, who signs your check every week? Spencer Tracy or the Benny Goose that lays the golden egg? <laughs> Take that as my thought for today. But, Jack, you don't seem to understand. Oh, no. When Spencer Tracy played the part, there was a decided difference between both characters. But when you did it, I couldn't tell your jackal from your hide. Well, you can't tell your stomach from an igloo. So what do you know about it? The fine pal you turned out to be. Not Jack. And don't call me Jack. From now on, you will please address me as Mr. Benny, and I'll call you Mr. Wilson. Is that clear? Oh, I think you're being very childish about the whole matter. Absolutely childish. Don't try to bring my age down. Flattery won't help. <laughs> Remember that, Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson? Who's Mr. Wilson? That Hulk over yonder. <laughs> Listen, Mary, you witnessed my performance last week. What did you think of it? Well, personally, I thought you were very good as Georgie Gentle. <laughs> I wasn't Gentle, I was Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll. Well, in that case, Pooey. <laughs> Pooey? What do you mean, Pooey? I don't get it. All right, take the word lovely and fool around with it. Let's see. Lovely, lively, low. Low. Mr. Benny to you. <laughs> and let me remind you and Mr. Wilson of something that you both may have forgotten. When I switched from Dr. Jekyll to that horrible Mr. Hyde and that gruesome look came over my face, women in the audience screamed. One of them even fainted. Well, it won't happen today. They caught that mouse. <laughs> All right. Oh, then I guess I can take these bicycle clips off my pants. <laughs> As long as you and Don are in such a critical mood, I'd like to point out that Christmas is only 18 days away. Why else did you come in mad at everybody? All right, keep it up, keep it up. You know, I already bought your Christmas present, young lady, but I may exchange it for something cheaper. Something cheaper? Yes. They don't dig a bargain basement that deep. <laughs> well, you worked in more of them than I did. <laughs> I can go along with a... Ouch! You do that once more, Miss Livingston. There'll be a... Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. Gee, was that a performance you gave last week? Was that a performance? <laughs> well, thanks, Dennis. I'm glad you liked it. Not only me, my whole family thought you were wonderful. That's nice. I'm glad someone appreciated me. Listen, Jack, the trouble with you is the minute you do something halfway good, it goes right to your head. Mr. Benny was wonderful. Quiet. Why, to hear you talk, Jack, anyone would think you were the biggest ham in Hollywood. Oh. I'd like to see a bigger one, by golly. <laughs> hmm. Well, thanks, Dennis. You tried. Anyway, you thought I was good. Oh, marvelous. What a performance. <laughs> well, look, uh, look, kid... I'm making out my Christmas list today, so before singing your song, how about throwing out a few hints? 
Now, what would you like Uncle Jack to get you? Well, I thought of a few things, but they're pretty expensive. Just name them. You're one person in this cast that deserves the best. Wait till I get my pencil here. Now, what do you want, Dennis? Well, I'd like to have a nice gray suit with a pinstripe. Okay. One gray suit with pinstripe. Anything else? Well, I'd love to have a grand piano to practice my songs on. Okay. One grand piano. Are you sure you got lead in that pencil, Mr. Benny? (laughs) Yes, yes. Now, what else do you want, Dennis? Well, I've always wanted one of those toy birds on a stick. And when you swing it around your head, the bird goes... Hmm. Okay. One bird on stick. Now, what else do you want? Oh, stop, will you? You're just trying to make Don and me jealous. Dennis isn't going to get all that stuff. Well, he's getting something he wants. Gee, I wonder what it is. I'll give you a hint, kid. (laughs) Don't spoil the surprise, for heaven's sake. Now, go ahead with your song, Dennis. Okay. Hold it a minute. Come in. Mr. Benny? Yes? I want to congratulate you on your performance as Mr. Hyde last week. I was so frightened, my hair stood on end. (laughs) Uh, Your hair? Uh, What hair? Right there. Stand up, Herman. (laughs) Oh, get out of here. Herman. Well, I suppose if you only got one hair, you might as well have a name for it. Sing, Dennis. Special announcement. The entire regular personnel of the sheriff and police office has been placed on a two-platoon basis with 12-hour shift. All auxiliary personnel has been directed to stand by for emergency service instructions. 
The regular county defense program is functioning in an orderly manner, and citizens are urged to remain calm and avoid all unnecessary confusion because of hysteria. Citizen volunteers are asked to go quietly to their nearest police or fire stations and offer their services if they wish to help. There is no immediate cause for alarm, and coolness will accomplish more than anything else. of Everything I Love and All the Things You Are, sung by Dennis Day. Very good, Dennis, but what's the idea of singing two songs today, huh? Well, Mr. Benny, I've got two girls, and I thought I'd dedicate a number to each of them. Two girls? Well, that's modern youth for you. You know, Dennis, when I was your age, uh, I was satisfied with only one girl. Guffy Bagelquist. Ah, <laughs> uh, Guffy was a dream, yeah. Is that the girl you sued because she cut you with her buck teeth? <laughs> I never sued her. I just told her to get a brace on. <laughs> anyway, I was talking to Dennis. Whatever happened to your girl, Mr. Benny? The Gussie? Oh, I went into Baudville and she went away to veterinary college. <laughs> we sort of drifted apart. She's one of the biggest horse doctors in northern Illinois now. Uh, doing uh, very well, too. Do you keep in touch with her, Mr. Benny? Do you ever write to her? Oh, once in a while when he has a cold or something. <laughs> Yeah, I had a touch of the flu a couple of weeks ago, and she sent me some pills that were as big as baseballs and some liniment to rub on my withers. <laughs> One thing about Gussie, though, I never get a bill from her. That's... Well, hmm. Look who's here. Hiya, Jackson. How's my pal? Don't Jackson or pal me, Mr. Harris. Let me ask you something. Did you or did you not go into the Brown Derby after last Sunday's show and tell people that my acting was putrid? Last Sunday? Maybe I did. I say that lots of times. Well, you did. You told everybody at your table that I was very bad as Jekyll and Hyde. How do you know? Because I've got a waiter there that spies for me. Naturally, you couldn't tip a waiter just for waiting on you. Mary, that's a little arrangement between Andre and me. Yeah, I should have known that waiter was a spy. His mustache fell on my suit. He wearing a false mustache. I told him not to overdo it. Anyway, Phil, you did run down my performance. Yeah, but I changed my mind about that. You know, I met one of the greatest dramatic actors in this town last night, and he said you were great. Orson thought you were terrific. Who, Orson Welles? No, Orson Buggy. <laughs> hey, that a new, well, new. <laughs> well, ma'am, that settled it. <laughs> If I don't get Glenn Miller in my stocking Christmas morning, I'll never write another letter to Santa. And incidentally, Mr. Harris, you better have a good excuse for coming in late today. Well, I'm sorry, Jackson, but I was out shopping. Say, Mary, you know what I'm getting Alice for Christmas this year? No, what? A roaster. A roaster, say. You know, for the oven. <laughs> That's a roaster. Buys his wife a roaster for Christmas and calls it a roadster. All right, I'll put wheels on it. 
That's a Sharpie, eh, Jackson? It's a Sharpie, eh, Jackson? Sharpie, Sharpie, Sharpie. Don't call me Jackson. I'm Mr. Benny to you and to everybody else on this program except Dennis. You mean I can call you Jack? Yes, until I make up with the others. <laughs> what burns me up, I worked my head off on that play last week and did a swell job. You sure did, Jack. <laughs> And this little episode just shows me who my friends are. That's telling them, Jack. <laughs> After all, I had to follow a pretty good actor in that part, Spencer Tracy. Why, I would never have even tried it if we both hadn't won the Academy Award. Wait a minute. When did you ever win the Academy Award? And another thing. I said, when did you ever win the Academy Award? Hmm. And another thing. Answer my question. When did you win the Academy Award? I wish I had, brother. Would I have you in a spot? <laughs> I guess that takes care of you. You said it, Jackie. <laughs> Look, Dennis, just Jack, not Jackie. Give <laughs> 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 me wants to take a whole foot. <laughs> what a game. I got a good mind to go home. Oh, for goodness sake, Jack, will you stop acting like a baby? You ought to know the whole thing was a rib. Oh, sure. As a matter of fact, I liked your performance in Jekyll and Hyde so much that I wrote a sequel to it. Well, ain't you the fat little Noel Coward? <laughs> Who cares what you wrote? And Jack, Jack, now get this. As a favor to me, I want you to play the leading part in this drama. <laughs> I'll tell him when he comes in. You can keep your old sequel. But you've got to help me out, Jack. There's no one else in the cast with sufficient dramatic ability to handle it. Look, I'm not going to... Dramatic, eh? Well... Well, all right, Don, I'll do it. I thought you were mad at him. Never mind. You'd go over Niagara Falls in a Dixie cup if someone told you it was dramatic. <laughs> What's dramatic about a Dixie cup? Don, you say you've written a sequel to Jekyll and Hyde? Yes, Jack, but my play is called Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll. Oh. Oh, well, that sounds interesting. Here's the script. Thanks. Just a second, Don. I'll give you a build-up. Chord, please. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Don Wilson, that eminent American author, has written another of his famous one-act plays. Take it, Don. The scene is the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Homer D. Hyde in the thriving little town of Upper Plate, Indiana. It is 7.30 p.m. Curtain. Music. Dear, it's 7.30 and Homer isn't home yet. I wonder if his horse and buggy broke down. <laughs> Gee, I hope it's one of his moods. Ah, here he comes now. <laughs> Good evening, Homer, dear. You're a little late, aren't you? All right, I'm late. And I'll be late any time I feel like it. <laughs> aren't you going to kiss me, darling? Kiss me, kiss me. Every night a kiss. I'll kiss you with this umbrella. Ouch! I'm going to bed. Good night. But, Homer, you haven't even said hello to the twins, Otto and Blotto. <laughs> Say hello to Daddy, children. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. <laughs> oh, shut up. 
<laughs> oh, so I wonder what people out of you kids and I'll kick your teeth out as soon as they grow in. <laughs> I'm going to bed now. But, Homer, darling, you haven't had your dinner yet. Dinner, dinner, every night dinner. I don't want any dinner. But, Homer, dear, at least have some dessert. What kind of dessert? I won't tell you, but I'm sure you like it. Here, have a dish. Very well. I'll try it. But if I eat it and decide I don't like it, someone will be dead. Murder. Murder. <laughs> He's eating the dessert. I do hope he likes it. If not, what will happen to me and Otto and Blotto? <sighs> Gee. Oh, boy. Homer, Homer, speak to me. Speak to me. Oh, my darling, that tasted so good. What is the name of that tempting and economical dessert with a new locked-in process? Hmm? <laughs> Dear, and it comes in six delicious flavors. Strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and wine. My sons, at last I love you. Congratulations, you wrote a wonderful play. But, Jack, without you, it would have been impossible. You were even better than the last week. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Well, how about a band number, Phil? Okay, Dowdy. <laughs> Hold it. Come in. Well, Mr. Benny, you did it again. Were you scared? Look at Herman. He just won't go down. <laughs> what a head he's got. That's the only persimmon I ever saw with brown eyes. Play, Phil. Another war bulletin, Shanghai. The Japanese took over the American Shanghai Power and Light Company this morning. A bulletin from New York. The Japanese news agency broadcast tonight the Japanese foreign minister... Jinginori Togo summoned U.S. Ambassador Joseph C. Grew and handed to him Japan's reply to Secretary of State Cordell Hull's terms for peace in the Pacific. This news came hours after the bombing of Honolulu. We return you now to Hollywood. from Weekend in Havana, played by Blotto Harris, and that goes for the whole orchestra. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to announce that next week is a special attraction. Gee, Mr. Benny, I can't get over the way you played Mr. Hyde just now. Was that a performance? <laughs> it thrilled you, eh, Dennis? I'll say. That crazy laugh just sent shivers right through me. Well. The kid's right, Jackson. How'd you ever learn to do that? Well, Phil, you just have to get into a, the mood and feel it. You have to imagine that you're a raving maniac. When was the first time you ever did that crazy laugh, Jack? Last year at San Anita, lost three races in a row. <laughs> Never mind. When they caught him, he was chewing down the grandstand like a beaver. Well, you'd be mad, too. So let's forget it. Now, as I started to announce, ladies and gentlemen, next week is a special attraction. You know, Mr. Benny, I'd like to learn how to do that laugh so I can scare my girlfriend. Oh, it's easy, Dennis. Yeah, I wish you'd show me how to do it, Mr. Benny. Oh, I don't Come feel... on, Jackson, do that laugh for us again. Well, look, Dennis, here's the way you do it. You've got to screw up your face and get it all distorted. Then you rip open your tie and shirt. Well, don't you have to muss up your hair a little? My hair? You know, those three Hermans. <laughs> That's not important. Anyway, Dennis, once you're in this mood, you read a menacing line and then laugh. Now, get this. I'm going out for a walk now. A nice long walk. And when I come back, someone will be dead. Murdered. Murdered. <laughs> Ooh. What's the matter, Jack? My jaw. My jaw slipped out of place. Look at it. His what? His jaw. His jaw slipped out of place. Get a doctor. Get a doctor. Hurry up. What a Walkeegan 8362. Not worth it. Just hold on to the throne. Now, take it easy, Jack. Take it easy. Oh, it hurts. Just hold still, Jack, and I'll snap your jaw back in place. All right. Hurry up, Don. Now, brace yourself. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Dennis, the next time you want me to show you something, wait till the program's over. Well, it's your own fault for showing off. I wasn't showing off. Phil. Well, I got a few left over from last week. <laughs> Fish back in the piano. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, as I started to announce before I dislocated my jaw, next week as a special attraction, the Benny Stock Company is going to present. Oh, now what? Hello? Hello, Mr. Benny. This is Rochester. What do you want? Boss, there's no use. I tried and tried, and I can't get Carmichael to go to sleep. Rochester, that polar bear's got to go to sleep. He's supposed to have been in hibernation over ten days ago. Uh-huh. If Carmichael doesn't get to sleep by the middle of this month, he'll be a wreck in the spring. Where is he now? Sitting up in bed reading Esquire. <laughs> Esquire? Well, take it away from him. Oh, come now, boss. He's been around. <laughs> I mean, he's got to get to sleep. Now, Rochester, use a little, a little psychology on him. Give him some warm milk. Give, give him some warm milk, put on his pajamas, and brush his teeth. Would you mind repeating that slowly, please? I said, give him some warm milk. Uh-huh. Put on his pajamas. Uh-huh. And brush his teeth. Uh-uh. Rochester, what are you afraid of? That bear is as gentle as a lamb. He wouldn't bite you. He wouldn't, eh? No. Then why am I the largest single user of band-aids in the USA? <laughs> Rochester, listen, Carmichael doesn't hate you. He likes you. He likes everybody. Then what happened to the gas man? 
didn't happen to the gas man. Carmichael doesn't eat people. You ought to see that letter he wrote Santa Claus. What letter? Dear Santa, please send a fat boy to read the meter. <laughs> Stop making things up. Now, you keep Carmichael in bed, and when I come home, I'll sing Rockabye Baby to him. That'll put him to sleep. Okay, so long. So long. Oh, say, boss. Now what? Are you coming home for dinner tonight? Yes. Well, that'll finish up the wild up. Good, good. So long. I gotta get that bear to sleep before Christmas, or he'll want a present. Play, Phil. Ooh, my jaw. <laughs> while you're looking through the December magazines in search of an idea for Aunt Martha's Christmas present, keep an eye open for this month's Jell-O page. A full page of Jell-O treats illustrated in such rich glowing colors that it makes your mouth water just to look at it. One of the desserts is called Jack Benny's Special Apricot Ring, and honestly, friends, I think it's just about the grandest-looking dessert Jell-O ever made. It's an easy recipe, too. Just dissolve one package of lemon Jell-O in one and one-fourth cups of hot water. Next, add a dash of salt and three-fourths of a cup of syrup from the canned sliced apricots. Then chill until thickened and fold in two and a half cups of the sliced apricots themselves. When molded, serve with a garnishing of whipped cream, apricot quarters, and green maraschino cherries. And there it is. A golden, glistening mold of juicy sliced apricots and sunny lemon jello. Canned apricots and lemon jello are being featured by many grocers all next week. So get them both and make up this delicious treat. Jell-O makes any gelatin recipe taste extra good because its locked-in flavor gives you all the flavor, always. This is the last number of the 10th program in the current Jell-O series, and we will be with you again next Sunday night at the same time. Oh, Mary, you want to have dinner at my house tonight? No, thanks. I've had so much of that duck, I'm a bigger quack than Gussie. <laughs> Don't pay any attention to her, Gussie. Good night, folks. Phil! Tomorrow, when you visit your grocers, look at the shelf where you always see those familiar packages of Jell-O. Right beside them, or very near them, you'll spy another Jell-O product. Jell-O puddings in three grand flavors. Chocolate, vanilla, and butterscotch. You might try Jell-O butterscotch pudding. It's as smooth as cream and simply full of rich golden butterscotch flavor. A pudding that your whole family will want to enjoy again and again. So when you order Jell-O, order Jell-O puddings, too. They're just like grandma's, only more so. This is the National Broadcasting Company.